welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Chat Rasden, the CEO and founder of Care and Wear. Chat left his career as an investment banker at Goldman's to launch Care and Wear and improve the experiences of those receiving critical treatment by changing the way the world looks and feels about healthcare. So what that means is Care and Wear is a health wear company bridging fashion and function so that receiving critical care can feel more like people and less like patients. So working alongside clinicians, designers, and patients themselves, Care and Wear creates functional and fashionable healthware that promotes dignity, style, and comfort for people everywhere. So something a little bit different for the Health Tech Podcast this week, but you'll see why I've brought chat on as we get into it. So chat, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, James. Thanks so much for having me here and super excited to share our story. You're very welcome. Um, I must say, it's the first time we've had a, a, fa- a functional and fashionable healthware company on the Health Tech Podcast. But as I say, you've got plenty of reason to be here from the stuff we're going to talk about. But first of all, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, chat? Yeah, I'm uh, sitting in our office in New York City, uh, in New York. Very nice. Very nice. We just had thunder and lightning all day today. So it's been quite a, quite an epic day for weather in the UK. How And very British fashion. How is yeah. the weather where you are in New I York? I was going to say, it sounds like your standard July day in London. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's basically the gods crying because it did not come <laughs> home yesterday. Football right. did not come home. And so this right. is the gods way of just releasing their emotion in the UK. That's what it is. You know, the optimist in me would say that you hosted an amazing Wimbledon, you were able to host an amazing Euro 2020, and while it didn't end up how everyone in the UK wants it, um, the team is looking great, you've got a lot of young talent, and I think that there's going to be a lot of positive outcomes for you all in the future. Very kind thing to say. Uh, I think optimism is one of the things, it's one of the entry requirements for entrepreneurship. And so I'm very, very glad that you said that because that's kind of how I feel too. As we talked about off off air, right? Yeah. Literally, there's a World Cup next year. We can just get back on the horse. We finished fourth, third, and now second in major tournaments recently. Obviously, first is next. It has to be, right? Yeah. That that is the optimist in both of us that, that that, that says that. But anyway... Um, so New York City, yeah, what's it like? What's it like this time of year? Yeah, it's it's interesting because normally New York is a little more dead during the summer um, as the locals like to flee um, out to the beaches. But I think because of COVID and everyone being gone last year, this year you're seeing the famous saying here has been New York is back. Um, interesting. And it has been extraordinarily busy. You see a lot of people out and about bars and restaurants are starting to get crowded again. Um, and it's, there's just a sense of energy here that nice. you haven't gotten to experience in the last year. And it's, it's exciting to see so many people um, wanting to create so much change. That's very, very cool. I love that. And I, I wish the same for London in the coming yeah. few months, definitely. Um, I know literally in a week's time given away when this is recorded, but yeah, in a week's time we're, we're all back open. So That's awesome. yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Um, cool, man. So the way we start this podcast, I get you to tell your story. Now, obviously, you've got a quite interesting background from that intro. So obviously, Goldman's or GS or Goldman Sachs, however you want to say, however you want to say that, 
but um, a career there followed by a career in entrepreneurship. So by all means, uh, tell us a bit of your story. Yeah, totally. Um, I like to tell everyone that I have the most uh, boring background of anyone that's a founder. I um, <laughs> am a former strategy consultant and investment banker. So started my career working for Kearney, where I had been told in college that I could tell CEOs what to do as a 22-year-old. And I mean, I don't know about you, but that sounded like an awesome job. Right? <laughs> you're, you're 22 years old, you're staying in amazing hotels, and you're getting to tell Fortune 500 companies how to run their companies. And I learned that that's not really what consulting is. But um, my first project was actually in Rockford, Illinois, um, where I think the nicest hotel was a quality inn. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually grew up learning how to swim in quality inns. So um, it was a brand that was near and dear to my heart, but it was definitely not the Ritz and Four Seasons that everyone had pitched me on. Um, But nonetheless, had an amazing four years where I got to help companies think about how to grow, how to enter new markets, et cetera. However, knew I didn't want to be doing that long term. And so went to back to business school, uh, the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and swore I would never move back to New York and never do investment banking. Um, So naturally moved back to New York and did investment banking for Goldman. Um, really focused in the tech media telecom space and helping companies think about strategic uses of capital and growing, buying and selling um, IPOs. And as I worked on an IPO uh, for a company called Cvent, uh, it's an event management software company. As I was working on their IPO, I kind of realized like, look at all the passion and excitement that the founders have. And there were 14 founders that were involved in writing their S1, which is a lot, um, but just was like, I want that and I really need that. And at the same time, I had loved ones diagnosed with cancer, told to wear socks over what's called a pick line in their arms. Uh, for those of you that don't know, a pick line is an IV tube. It goes in your arm and connects to your heart. Use it to get nutrition or antibiotics into your body over an elongated period of time. So instead of breaking into your vein every single time, they can use this pick line to get into your body. And just saw people wearing socks on their arms and thought, this is terrible, right? Like, yeah, you know, I'm not the world's most fashionable person, but I knew that wearing a sock on your arm is not fashionable and wanted wanted to do something about it. And honestly, I can say it's the one and probably only time that I started working on a solution with no desire to make it a company, but rather just starting to work on it because I felt that we had to do something about it. And um, because of my background, I knew that I was not the right person to be designing these products. Again, former banker, former consultant, I'm really good at PowerPoint, even better at Excel, um, but not <laughs> you really use a mouse. Good. Can you, can you navigate the whole thing without a mouse? I could, I, back in my prime, I did not need the mouse. Amazing. Um, unfortunately now for better, and it's set, this is when you know my background is real when I say <laughs> unfortunately, but now I definitely need the mouse uh, for a little help, but um, I don't let anyone know that. So we probably shouldn't share that. But um, all bad jokes aside, um, wanted to get the right people in the room with me to design the products. And 
So kind of started taking an approach to design and development that today has actually become Karen Ware's three-pronged approach to design and development. But first and foremost, getting clinicians in the room. I grew up the son of an anesthesiologist and my mother always told me how important it was to have nurses in the room with us and how they were the most caring and amazing people ever. And so I said, okay, I gotta get nurses and doctors involved. And fortunately, through my connections with her, uh, was able to get the nursing and uh, oncology teams from Hopkins and UVA involved in the design and development. And that was important because first and foremost, they could ensure that our products were medically superior to everything else out there. And then that actually enabled us to get proprietary IP on each and every one of our products. So for the pick line cover, for example, the reason that you're told to wear a sock is because you need breathability and visibility to the actual pick line. And that was something that me as a loved one of a patient going through it had no idea that's why they were being told to wear a sock. But by working with the nurses and doctors, I could find that, hey, we need to make this visible. We need, we need to make this um, something that you can allow for breathability. And that strategically enabled us to get a patent on it. Um, secondly, wanting to work with the end user. Um, I go back to when I was a child, I had a lot of ear infections and so ended up having to get tubes in my ears three times. And I always remember how terrible it was to be going into the hospital for surgery. And then I wasn't the cool seven-year-old, so I wasn't getting my tonsils removed, which meant I wasn't getting an ice cream diet for a week, um, but rather uh, was for better or worse, getting, I guess, real food um, once the surgery was over. Um, but just being terrified of the experience there, knowing that I would be in a ton of pain. And then as a seven-year-old, being even more terrified that I was exposing my backside to everyone in the hospital with this open back gown. And that just sucked, right? And so yeah. wanting to make sure that we get seven-year-old chat involved in the design and development and every patient and every clinician that we're designing products for involved so that we can think about what do they care about and what is something that they're going to be comfortable to wear. Um, on the patient gown, it's something that we were really fortunate to actually teach a class at Parsons School of Design to redesign that patient gown wow. with the goal, the goal now that you can wear a bathrobe looking product rather than an open exposed yeah. uh, backside gown. And then finally is bringing in a fashion and design background to incorporate the latest trends and technologies and designs. And so I've been able to work with brands like Oscar de la Renta. As I mentioned, we taught the class at Parsons where we had 10 amazing students, nine incredible hospital systems, commercial launderers, and even Donna Karen and Kay Unger involved in the design and development. And then most recently, uh, just launched a clinical line with Josie Notori and her company, the Notori Company, uh, to design uh, scrubs for each and every of the 59 million plus healthcare workers around the world. Um, and so that design and development process is kind of what is that process, I guess, that I undertook has evolved into our design process. And we're excited to keep, keep, uh, creating new products and keep trying to be as innovative as possible to help all of those around the world, uh, whether you're a patient or a clinician. It's a really cool story, man. And there's so many 
I suppose, themes that are common to this podcast. Uh, the first thing that I want to talk to you about, mm-hmm. though, I suppose, is you seem like a person that <clears throat> I was going to say against your better judgment, and but like <laughs> you went into investment banking, right? Yeah. But seemingly you're a person connected to healthcare. Mm-hmm. You're uh, the son of a doctor. You've had patient experiences. You've had family experiences. It seems like you always had a connection to healthcare with a parent, but then I suppose the connection to healthcare grew as you had these various experiences. We talk about motivation on this podcast a lot. It seems to be that so many people need a motivator in order to build a healthcare company, because at the end of the day, you could argue that you're a fashion company. I would argue you're a healthcare company because at the end right. of the day, you're doing deals with hospitals. You're going through the same pain that all the healthcare companies have to do, proving ROI, I imagine, yep. proving lots of different things. I imagine clinical trials, you know, all this sort of stuff. You're, you're doing the same as so many hardware, software, technology companies. And so I would argue you're a healthcare company. But in terms of that motivator, it's interesting to me that you have one too. You've had... Uh, and seen and felt the pain of patients that have got a pick line, which, as you say, for the people listening, is a line that goes in the arm all the way through the body, which then you can give very powerful drugs and feeds and all sorts through it. But being covered by a sock, you're right. It robs people of, I suppose, a real kind of basic amount of dignity um, and choice and freedom and it, be- it becomes quite defining. And I imagine for some people that are more fashion conscious, particularly, it must be a real source of anxiety. That anxiety can feed into the way that that patient's physiology is working, quite frankly. There's lots of potential knock-on effects that that can have. And so I guess, I don't know as much as a, as a question here or more just, I suppose, me putting words in your mouth, but would you have been able, I suppose, on one hand, would you have been able, do you think, to start a healthcare company if it wasn't for this motivator? What are those barriers like? Um, and on the other hand, I suppose, did you always feel a connection to healthcare? Do you think this was always your destiny to do something in healthcare? How much of a push really was it to enter the healthcare world? Yeah. Um, in terms of feeling a connection to healthcare, uh, I honestly always thought I would be a doctor. Um, my, I grew up... Uh, very good at math and science, always loved pretending that I was a doctor, um, would always borrow my mom's scrubs or stethoscope, <laughs> whatever, you name it, uh, we would do it. And then in 11th grade, I saw um, a colon get removed. And I remember um, it was leveraging technology and it was super cool because they were doing the whole surgery on video camera. They had put a video camera um, in the body and did everything by looking at the TV and thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then <laughs> when they removed it from the body, realized that that wasn't for me when all the nurses were surrounding me rather than the patient. And I <laughs> apparently was turning green, basically. And But it was always in the back of my mind. And I think that um, uh, I've always, my friends and I have always talked about Gandhi's quote of be the change that you wish to see in the world. And yeah. I think that that's something that has always resonated with me. And um, when I went the business route, I still wanted to do more than just think about a PL statement. And I wanted yeah. to do more than 
um, just worried about how much money can we make. And don't get me wrong, I would love to build a company that makes a lot mm -hmm. of money, but more importantly for me, and what we really measure as success here is how many lives are we impacting and mm -hmm. what are we doing to help those around us. And a great example of that is when we started the company, I came up with a 10% give back. So 10% of our profit oh, wow. goes back to nonprofits, either in the form of product or cash. And that was something that was super important to me. I can assure you it's something that Silicon Valley did not love. Um, mm. Brand new company with no income is saying 10% is going to go back to nonprofits. But it was something that I said, if we are saying that we're going to reimagine the world and we're going to help the community and help those around us, we have to put our money where our mouth is and we have to yeah. do this from the get-go. And if we can build a model with that in mind, then we can be successful in the future. And the honest truth is, is 10% the right number? Probably not. Mm, it's interesting. Yeah, I have no idea. But I know that it's not 1% and I feel that there's so many companies that say we do 1% as a give back and that's just more of a marketing ploy. And yeah. for me, it was something that we wanted to do from the get-go and be able to help. And last year, um, we were able to give uh, products to over 90 different hospital systems and governments wow. around the world as part of our give back. And that to me matters a lot more than the exact dollars and cents that we made. I think at the end of the day, we're really driven by how do we how do we impact the community and how do we help those around us? And that is, I think that is what I was destined to create and destined to do. Um, and in terms of your second question, in terms of, you know, following your passion and your excitement, I think I wouldn't be and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that I'm a great CEO or a great leader mm -hmm. yet, um, but I wouldn't be to the place that I am today if I didn't have the backgrounds of consulting and investment banking. So mm -hmm. in both professions, I was thrown in a fire where I was presenting to those same Fortune 500 leaders. And while I wasn't telling them how to run their businesses and what to do, I was having to justify everything that I was doing. And I had to know their businesses, honestly, even better than they did. Yeah. And I think it's that desire and that understanding has helped me kind of think about things differently for Karenware and kind of know the numbers, be able to think about what is the long-term implication of a deal rather than, hey, what's this going to mean tomorrow? It's how is this going to impact us 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now? And I think that that is really, really important as we continue to grow Karenware and grow from one employee to 16 now to probably 50 next year. Like as we start wow. to think about all this growth is thinking about it from a longer term perspective. Yeah, that thinking becomes interesting as well when you consider how you've probably arrived at that 10% number as well. There'll be people that go like, oh, well, you know, it only takes one client to then make that pay right. back, but then you're giving that back too. So like, you know, there's obviously value in it as well. And so what if it makes your company bigger? Because isn't that the whole point? Because then more gets given back anyway, but also right. you're making more impact. And so the company itself is doing something intrinsically valuable to its market. And, yeah. you know, that's not just the financial value either. That's that's impact in health and in reduced anxiety and lots, lots of different things, right, which becomes really interesting. Before we move on to talk deeper about the company, because there's some interesting elements about design thinking and the deals that you're doing and, and, 
loads of cool stuff. But one more question or one more comment, mm-hmm. I guess. You mentioned a really interesting line there that I've actually heard a couple of times now on this podcast in recent episodes that I'm not a great CEO or leader yet. I think that's really interesting because I think that in itself is a really interesting indicator, for, especially for people that are going to join your company, right, mm-hmm. of like mindset and the type of, I suppose, thinking that goes on behind the scenes that influences culture and things like that. I think for a leader and a CEO to admittedly be learning on the job somewhat, admitting they're not going to get it right every time, that sort of stuff can make people feel like they're joining something that they too can make a mistake in, that they too don't have to be perfect, that the culture isn't toxic, that, you know, it's it's interesting that that flows so freely from you as a, a CEO and a leader. And frankly, forgive me, but a previous investment banker, you know, like it's an interesting mindset to to hear from someone with your background that, that you admit you don't have all the answers. It's funny. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me. Yeah, no. And, you know, um, all jokes aside, I actually think, so at Goldman, our mentality was, and sorry, their mentality uh, was always, <laughs> hey, it's fine if you screw up, just don't keep making the same mistake over and Fair. over. And I think that's kind of how we think about it at Karenware as well is we're going to make a lot of mistakes. We're learning together. And I 5,000% agree with you that if I'm able to screw up, hey, others are too. Um, but I think what's important is we're not doing the same thing 50 times or yeah. we're making the same mistake 50 times. And I think that there's some things that are easy to not make a mistake on, like attention to detail and punctuation yeah. and grammar, like basically everything that a Goldman or Kearney analyst yeah. or associate is kind of forced to know inside and out. But then there's other things when you think about, do we go into retail? Do we open up our own stores? Is there really a right answer? The answer is no, right? I mean, you look at all these e-commerce companies that today are now building their own retail stores five years after saying, well, we're never gonna open our own retail store. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I will never say we're never gonna do anything because again, the answer is, hey, I have no idea. Um, but it's how does that fit into strategically the shifts that you're seeing? How does that fit into the opportunity ahead of yourself? And I mean, now today, for example, now that we have um, products and clothing for both patients and clinicians, doing something like a store in a hospital could actually make more sense for us today than it did five years ago. Um, yeah. And maybe even more sense 10 years from now. Or you know, maybe 20 years from now, the Jetsons will actually happen and we'll be flying everywhere in their <laughs> spaceships and all that. I mean, Richard Branson just was able yeah. to do it. Jeff Bezos is about to do it. Um, I think that the real answer is we don't know. And what what I try and do, what I think is so important, and now what I'm finally starting to do well is hire really strong leaders that are joining yeah. our team and helping us make all those decisions. And, yeah. Um, I think that's the best thing you can do as a founder and CEO is get really great people to join you and empower them to make the decisions that, quite frankly, they might not know either, but they have a heck of a lot more experience than you do um, in dealing with that. And they're probably going to have better ideas than you do. It's the old mantra of one plus one equals three. Mm -hmm. That was probably the first equation I learned in business school. And it's sad that it took me that long to learn, but 
I think it's so, so important as you think about growing and being successful in the future. Mm. I'll have to get some hiring tips from you. It's not the yeah. easiest thing in the world it's, today. Let me yeah, tell you. it's not fun. Um, but we could do another hour on that. I'll leave totally. that behind. Um, I want to talk to you about your the company, Care and Wear Now. So you've talked about, mentioned a few products, pick line covers, scrubs for clinicians, gowns for patients. There's so much... I suppose, value in all those different things. Although it's something that, you know, for this podcast is slightly ectopic to use mm-hmm. a medical world, uh, world, use a medical word. Um, there is, however, technology that goes into it. You mentioned, so textiles, for example, the fabrics, yeah. the fact that they, a sock is great for a pick line because you can cut out a window and see the site see if it's infected and, and you can get access to it and also but also it's breathable and all these different things did you innovate the technology at all did you look at any antimicrobial stuff did you i mean ha- you must have had those thoughts right when you because when you think what's the perfect pick line yeah but, but then there's obviously issues with cost and there's issues with different things where did you land on looking at the technology and the textiles and and the fabrics associated with I suppose, the pick line specifically to begin yeah, with. Yeah, totally. And uh, to your point, I think technology, when you think about the word technology, does not necessarily equate to wearable tech uh, for a product, for example, right? Like when I yeah. think about technology, we are, all of our products have always, um, for the most part, been antimicrobial. We're trying to use leading edge uh, fabric. We're trying to be as sustainable as possible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Interestingly, on the antimicrobial nature, we actually used to use a non-hypoallergenic uh, chitosan-based uh, antimicrobial treatment. It was out of this world. It was incredible. And what we found is hospitals actually preferred, at least here in the U.S., they preferred that you use a silver-based antimicrobial treatment Fair. that was developed by Dow Chemical. And why? Because it was Dow Chemical and not some random new company that they had never right. heard of. Um, and then with chitosan, you get the worry of shellfish allergies and all of that stuff. What I've learned is you want to work with your client and your customers to understand what do they need and what do they require. And I think going back to that three-pronged approach, it's especially when utilizing technology in a world, like let's take a step back for Microsoft, for example, if they create the next Microsoft Excel or the next Microsoft PowerPoint, the grand scheme of things, if they screw up, maybe you get upset at them for doing that. Maybe you switch to Google Docs for a bit, something like that. If you're in a hospital, if you screw up, you could actually lead to someone's death. And while I'm not at all trying to say that the products that we're creating are a life or death product, that's the mentality that our customer faces. And that's the mentality that they have to have for their job. And so we have to empower them and work with them by giving them all the options out there, all the opportunities, leveraging technology when we can. Um, Our scrubs, for example, have a rayon spandex mix in with polyester, for example, to be able to make it more of an athleisure feel. Our pick line covers are a mix of um, cotton and spandex to be a little, like Lycra, to be a little stretchier. Like we can leverage technology wherever possible, but we have to work with the clinicians and the patients to do so. And I think once we've come to that realization, we've been able to create 
a lot of amazing products. I'll never forget one of the first phone calls I had was with a leading innovative member at the Cleveland Clinic. And you talk about innovation in Cleveland Clinic and they're normally in, uttered in the same sentence. And I was talking to him and at the time I used to tell everyone we're a wearable tech company. And he said, hold, hold on, hold on. Are you saying that you're a wearable tech company? And I was like, yeah, why? And he goes, well, if you really truly mean that, I'm going to put this phone on hold and I'm going to go jump out my window. <laughs> and you know, a year, a year later, I realized that he was on the first floor when I went and visited him and that <laughs> jump wouldn't have been that bad. But it was the, the issue of, hey, everyone's talking about wearable tech, but we don't know what to do with this data. We don't, we don't want it because it's going to create more complexity rather than less. Why don't you work with us to build something that we actually want? And I think it's understanding how technology plays in the workflow has been so important to even, I mean, how we take a PO a purchase order from a client. Um, historically, they wanted to fax things to you. And today, obviously, we don't have a fax machine, but it's even leveraging email or creating a backend platform for them to be able to send us things or working with them in their confines, I guess, that they want to work in. I think has been super, super important for us and helping them kind of innovate as they think about that and how to even survey people. We're currently working with a hospital where we're surveying people for them and we've given them access to a Google form. And historically they used to print out a thousand pieces of paper. So when you think about eliminating wastage, but also thinking about making sure they get the data, knowing what the data is saying in a quick and easy way. As you know better than anyone else, no one has any time these days, especially in a hospital. Anything you can do to eliminate some of that time is only going to help. Um, and I think that that's been really, really important to our growth. Yeah, it's interesting as well, because this, no matter whether you're selling textiles, selling hypodermic needles or selling tech software. There's some common truths here when trying to do deals with hospitals. And you've mentioned, well, a few of them, but at least two that stick out for me. The first of which um, you mentioned fitting something into the clinical workflow, extremely important, even when it comes to clothing, fabrics, textiles, pick line cover, whatever it is, at the end of the day, it's being used essentially in the pick line example as a medical device, essentially. Right. It has to right. be integrated into the workflow. How you open it, whether it's sterile, how it would be dropped onto the surgical field, like all of that stuff matters. And so that attention to detail on something that's going to be used in a, a sterile procedure, yeah. you know, it becomes extremely, extremely important. And so you have to have that level of detail. So it has to fit into the clinical workflow. The other thing that you mentioned in a roundabout way is essentially solving a problem end to end for the customer. I think that is extremely important too. You, you mentioned it in terms of building a backend admin system to do, you know, inventory and be able to do other stuff. Like there's, there's lots of different ways you can do that, but leveraging email and making sure that all that stuff's done automatically and automated where possible. Right. All of this stuff is what goes alongside a pick line cover. All of this right. stuff is what goes alongside a new AI machine learning platform that diagnoses something new. But, you know, what's happened, as you, as you rightly say, what's happening to the data in that example. Or indeed, yeah, if, if that pick line had a lovely optical blood pressure analysis uh, attachment and all of a sudden you've got wearable tech is your pick line cover device 
any better with that? Well, absolutely not, because they do not need that data. It is something that they don't know how to collect or monitor. And at the end of the day, what's that going to be like 50% noise of the moving around anyway? So exactly. I think it's really interesting, which brings me to my third point that I was going to make Mm -hmm. there about learning when to say no. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's extremely important, particularly as it pertains, as you've highlighted there, to product roadmap. I think so many, you see so many cases, very big cases, very public cases of huge companies just getting, well, it's a fine line, isn't it? Getting distracted and thinking that you can do a bit of everything and trying your hand at literally everything. That's the one kind of extreme. Um, And I suppose the other kind of useful extreme is actually going, well, we've got a bit of brand equity. We could go into other stuff. Right. We, we do want to be innovative. We do want to make mistakes, you know, Amazon, Google, you know, the amount of products that have tried and failed, you still want to foster that innovative entrepreneurial spirit. So I suppose my question there then becomes, how do you walk that line? How do you walk the line of, as you say, being the open CEO that is willing to try and make mistakes and fail and have an innovative organization versus, I'm not going to put an optical blood pressure measurement on my pick line because it's just not needed and I'm yeah. putting my foot down. Interesting lines of walk, right? Yeah, I think it's 100% based on what's the opportunity, what are the learnings that you can get out of it? And I think two examples. So um, first one, we had a new sales rep that uh, liked the idea of going, saw that there were a bunch of celebrities on Cameo Um, and wanted to ask them to promote us and said, hey, we can get a meeting with them because for $25, they'll sit and talk to you for 10 minutes. And let's go in the meeting and say, hey, would you pay us $50,000 to make this for someone? And in my head, I was like, this probably is not going to work because they're on Cameo. So they're clearly asking for money, not looking to dole out money, but said, this is a really valuable opportunity for our sales rep to learn that on their own. And it's something that as me, as a leader, I can show them, look, I am willing to empower you. And if you have an idea, even if I don't necessarily agree with it, I want to see it through. And that at the end of the day, opportunity cost, I think was like $100. So that- worth it every time, right? Like, yes, we do that. Whereas another time we had a request for, to that point, like wearable tech that is going to have all the information embedded into, I think it was a shirt, a uh, innovation area said, we want this and um, we think you're the best one to create it. And in my head, I was like, this is an awesome idea. It's nowhere near a our roadmap. It has nothing to do with any of the products that we have right now, but why don't we just make him come to that realization instead and said, okay, so normally on these sorts of things, we'll work with you where you'll actually pay for it up front and we'll sell you the first production run and normal production run, let's say is 10,000 units. And we are thinking that this shirt's going to cost a hundred dollars are you willing to spend a million dollars on this idea? If so, I'm happy to readjust my roadmap and readjust kind of my priorities for the year. And that'll also tell me if you're willing to pay a million dollars for this, this is a real problem that people really want. And um, they have since uh, gone MIA and not contacted (laughs) us since. And I think it's um, realizing what are, the chances that make sense and opportunities that 
make a lot of sense and are worth your kind of altering your journey or your path? And then what are the things that really make no sense? And how do you say no without offending someone? And I think that for us on a product innovation standpoint, it's making sure that when we're working with partners, we kind of make them understand why we're saying something and why we're leaning away from it. And I mean, I see that even with our current partners, um, with uh, Josie Notori, for example, there's a couple of products that she had really wanted to bring out. And I said, look, we really need to focus on scrubs. We don't want to make it too messy here. Like, let's create an amazing scrub in collaboration with all these incredible clinicians and let's do it really well. And then once we've succeeded with that, we can go to the next product, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's kind of how we think about it. Um, What I've learned over the last seven years is as a CEO, your job really is to say no whenever uh, a lot. Um, And so you have to be comfortable with that. And to your point, it's a really uncomfortable scenario where you have someone excited about an idea. Um, And the other thing I've learned is you can't just say no, unfortunately, you got to provide the context and thinking behind it. And that's something I've gotten a lot better at over the last few years is um, not just saying no, but talking to people about why I don't think something's going to work or why I don't think it's a good idea. And if they can prove me wrong, then awesome. Like yes. I want to be proven and that's wrong. The th- and that, that's the key, be- yes. remaining open-minded enough yeah. that you put your point of view forward. And I'm, I've become more and more, I suppose, familiar with this thing going around about radical candor. If you have the yeah. ability to have radical candor. If you if you have the ability to communicate exactly how and why you feel a certain way about something, it's difficult because you have to almost choose a path that you know is not the path of least resistance. It has some right. resistance and often a lot of resistance. But what you are doing, going back to something that you've talked about previously, is you're thinking long-term rather than short-term because you're right. not just placating someone and going, oh, well, we're not going to do that. We do want to keep our focus, but we're not going to do that now. We might do it later, right. but we're not going to do it now because that person's going to come back to you. And yeah. actually you haven't been honest with them and they're going to realize you're dishonest and you've done right. it with the, the best intentions of just solving the problem quickly, but you, you should have given a bit more in that situation to actually totally. educate that employee who's got great ideas. If you actually tell them the lie of the land, they'll probably come back with better ideas next time and actually will help you and the company out. So it's difficult though. I, I must admit- we're- we're actually um, creating uh, what we call the We Care Fund internally, where employees can pitch the team on initiatives that they want to undertake and that they think are a good idea. And each quarter, our team will listen to it and pick one or two or three or four um, and move with them and say, yes, let's do it. And it's a great way wow. to look at the end of the day. I. I I did consulting for four years. So yes, I did strategy for four years, but my team has so many amazing ideas and things that can make such a big difference in the world. And we want to empower them to follow those ideas and to make them a reality. And I think we're doing our first uh, meeting later this summer and so excited um, to start doing that. And it's, part of what made Google Google, right? Is the Mm -hmm. 20 where they really wanted their employees to find time to come up with other ideas and now it's their moonshots or whatever. But for us, it's even small ideas that we think could make a lot Mm -hmm. of sense. um, We're gonna start pursuing and we're excited to be doing that. 
it's a cool name. It's a cool initiative. Yeah, with my comms hat on, I'm just thinking you should be doing a lot of content around that yeah. because there's a lot that a lot of companies can learn from your learning as well as you right. go through that. I think that's a really cool, cool thing to do. Before we wrap up, mm-hmm. I want to ask you about two different things. I, we're going to do an episode after this, if you've got five minutes, that I'm going to record yep. with you about uh, your quick tips for how to sell to hospitals. We'll do that later. So for anyone listening now, you can go to the next episode to listen to Chad talk about his tips for selling to hospitals. But before we go, I want to add some value to our audience by talking about clinical trials and reimbursement because you've ticked these boxes and i think for any entrepreneur and people in all the health tech companies that will be listening i think this is valuable stuff and your experience of i suppose doing a a study on 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 the, the effectiveness of what you're doing and also your path to actual reimbursement i think that'd be really interesting yeah, absolutely. Um, so two different things on the study. Uh, we just did our first study with the hospital where quite candidly, the hospital did it and told us once they were yeah. done Perfect. Um, with a best case scenario, right? Um, did they fund it? <laughs> they completely did it on their I own mean, top five hospital system. Um, glorious. Where they actually came to us and said over the last three years, they found that our pick line covers reduce dislodgements by at least 78%. Um, Oof. And honestly, I used to pitch hospitals that we could help improve by 5%. So when I saw that number, I was like, holy mackerel, that is the most amazing number I've seen. Um, it's an obscenely so, high number. That's almost yeah. like too high, right? That's like- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, and it's funny because- <laughs> How is this? They, <laughs> they then were like the remaining 22% were actually people that- they didn't give our covers to, so it's really a hundred percent, but they hadn't formally written, like put that in the trial and all sure. that. And so I was like, look, 78% is great. Like we're yeah. not gonna, we're not gonna <laughs> nitpick here. Um, and I think that that is what we found is now what we're doing is start to, again, back to the surveys, but empower people to provide feedback and start to put clinical questions in those. And so even if it's an informal study, just accumulating that information, we've seen our patient gowns, for example, increase patient satisfaction up to two times um, just by using our gowns. And it's something that's obvious, but it's like, if you can get data, why not get it and accumulate it? Well, especially for those hospitals and those systems and those countries whereby that can lead to reimbursement or that can lead to points or you know some sort of actual uh quantitative measure of of improvement of a hospital you know yeah and that that is then enabled us to get uh reimbursement we actually funny enough and um this is either a really positive or a really negative but we had an amazing summer intern uh pre-mba at chicago booth that helped us this past summer and get both our um, bras to be fully reimbursable, as well as um, putting in for our pick line covers to be reimbursable and starting that process. And honestly, what I've learned is it's not as, and I guess I should knock on wood here, but it's, (laughs) it's not as crazy or difficult as you think like when you start a company as a founder you're like oh i'm not going to worry about insurance i'm not going to worry about reimbursement and what we've learned over the years is there's actually a lot of resources out there that'll help you do it and it it's a matter of hours it's not a matter of days or years to 
to fill out the paperwork. It is a matter of days and years to get the data necessary for that paperwork. But um, what we found is we have the data pretty easily and we're now actually working with another leading hospital system to design a new product where we're going to be um, working with the NIH to design, to fund the product from the get-go. And so as part of that, they're funding the clinical trial, they're funding kind of the accumulation of all that data to make sure it's reimbursable from day one. Wow. And I think that that's kind of, as we've grown, we've been able to do that. And I'm super excited about that in data. And I think the biggest lesson I would say is make sure that you're just getting data wherever possible because you never know when you're going to be able to leverage it and utilize it. Awesome. Um, chat, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. You, I hope you can stick around to do another quick recording, which will be the next episode to this. So please listen to that Yeah, if you want his tips. Um, as I say, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. There's certainly more than one way to start an innovative healthcare company or however you want to define it, health tech company, but certainly not a wearable tech company. We've learned that. That's that's negative con connotations. But uh, the point is you have built technology that is making a huge difference to the tune of somewhere between 78 and 100% of uh, reduced infections with your pick line covers, patients feeling a heck of a lot better about walking down a corridor um, with their backside covers of patient gowns and obviously uh, clinicians too, feeling the benefit of your scrubs and everything that you're doing. It's it's interesting to me that no matter what the technology, whether it's textiles and fashion, or whether it's an AI machine learning platform, the problems that you end up having to solve are very similar if, well, they are exactly the same. Off the motivators, the same. I think there's there's obviously a heck of a lot of interesting, innovative companies within healthcare that we've previously missed on this podcast with a very narrow definition of what technology is. And I might just have to find a few more like yourself um, to come on here. But uh, until the next time, my friend, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, um, our website is always the best, karenware.com, just www.careandware.com. And uh, we have our all of our contact info there. And um, we're just excited to be able to make a difference and truly can't thank you enough for the opportunity to share our story. You're very welcome, sir. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.